Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet Sarah Archer, author of The Plus One, a novel about what happens when a female robotics engineer who can't find a date to her sister's wedding to pacify the unrelenting pressure by her mother to get a man, decides to build her own date, the perfect man for her. Dating is hard, and apparently being dateless at your perfect sister's wedding is even harder, which is why when Kelly couldn't find Mr. Wright, she built him. Renee Carlino, author of Blind Kiss, calls it simply unputdownable, a story full of laughter and tears. Sarah starts the show with a reading from early in the book where the protagonist's mother and her family are putting the heat on her to get a date for her sister's wedding. But she was quickly distracted by the inevitable question. So, Kelly, her mom asked brightly, have you met anyone recently? Well, a boatswain from the Philippines just asked me to connect on LinkedIn, so you know what I mean, a man. No, Mom, since you asked me last week, I have not found a husband. No need to be snippy. I just want what's best for you. After all, you are already 29. I would think you would gladly take my help in the situation. And luckily for you, I met someone. Congratulations, dear. Will I be invited to the wedding? Carl asked, not looking up from his salad. I mean for Kelly, obviously. Mom, I don't... Oh, is this the one you were telling me about? Clara interrupted Kelly excitedly. I think you'll actually like him, Kel. Please don't... But Kelly failed again. Give it a try. Worst that happens is this stranger murders you on the first date, and then at least you're not dying alone, Gary said, slicing food for two of the girls across his own untouched plate. His expression was so straight that few people but Kelly would have been able to tell he was joking, and even she wasn't convinced. I really don't want... But now Diane cut across Kelly. Will everyone please just let me finish? Oh, how rude of me, Kelly thought. His name is Martin, and he's Donna's sister's neighbor's son. He's a realtor and a tennis player and just adorable, and best of all, he's the same height as Gary, so everything will be symmetrical in the pictures. What pictures, Gary asked. At the wedding, obviously. Kelly couldn't let this go on. Mom, I don't care how good this guy looks next to Gary. I'm not marrying him. Not your wedding, silly, though who knows. I mean for Clara's wedding. Oh, and I almost forgot. He has a cocker spaniel. Diane sat back, satisfied. The man had a cocker spaniel. It's perfect, right, Kel? Clara beamed. Wait, so you guys just went out and found a plus one for me? I know how you dread these things, Diane said. Now you don't even have to worry about it. Well, what makes you think I don't already have one? You don't, do you? Kelly spluttered. That's not the point. 
I don't want to go to my sister's wedding with some tennis-playing jerk-off I don't even know. Straight out of college, Sarah Archer moved to Los Angeles to work in film and television. When bigwigs say, have your people, call my people. She was the people. And since then, shifted to writing full-time and has been thrilled to enter the fiction world. Sarah is a blacklist screenwriting mini-lab fellow who has had material produced for Comedy Central and published short stories and poetry in numerous literary magazines. After living in Los Angeles, where she worked in literary management and development on projects including House, Concussion, Roots, and Girls Trip, she spent time in St. Martin, England, New York City, and Miami until she arrived back in her home state of North Carolina, where she lives with her husband and her pug. The Plus One is her first novel. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte McMurk Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts wherever you like to get your podcast. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so you are with your debut novel, published by an imprint of Penguin Random House. That's not bad for your first novel. Yeah, yeah I feel very lucky. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. They've been wonderful. Yeah. So how did it feel to be so young and get a book contract with an advance and all the trimmings right out of the gate here? Well, I mean, it's sort of like the the dream scenario for a writer to have your first novel actually sell and sell to a major publisher who um, has a great track record. So I'm very lucky in that sense. But this is my first novel that I've ever done, but it's mm-hmm. not the first thing I've ever written. Right. Um, I studied creative writing in college. Even before that, in high school, I, I wrote a lot. And I spent several years in Los Angeles working in um, film and TV development and just doing my own writing on the side. So I have a background writing screenwriting, poetry, short stories, all sorts of things. And I think my experience with that really helped me to write my first novel Mm -hmm. um, and to give me an idea of how to to structure it and how to approach character development and that sort of thing. So that helped out a lot. But still it is. I mean, there are a lot of good writers out there that uh, struggle to get their first book you know, published yeah, with a for rep- sure. reputable publisher. So you're, you're going to accept that lightning struck a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah of yeah. course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you're right. You, you came up with a good idea. You came up, you're a good writer. Um, what was it you think uh, put you over the line with this particular book that, that attracted the publisher to this? We're going to get into it all during the show mm-hmm. here, but what do you think it was that, uh, that, that sucked him in? Well, um, I mean, it's hard to say. Like you said, some of it I think is just lightning striking and you get lucky. I think also this story, in certain ways, is very topical. It it deals with robots and AI. Um, It also has a protagonist who's a young woman working in a STEM field as a robotics engineer. So there are several things about it that are kind of relevant for today's world and that hit on different you know, topics that are in the news right now. Um, so I think that was appealing. But at its heart, it's also just a classic yeah. romantic comedy. It's fun, it's fun right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you've added those uh, sort of current uh, AI, artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got the, the plus one piece, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit for the uh, millennials who 
have to deal with parents who are mm-hmm. getting on about <laughs> whether they've got a date to the event or not. Exactly. But first, let's talk about your geographic and career path here. You're a young writer who ends up living in Concord by way of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. right? So how did you get from here to L.A. to then St. Martin to England to New York City and Miami? What's, what's the short version of that story? Yeah. Uh, the short version mm-hmm. is it was for my husband's schooling. So okay. I, I grew up in Raleigh in North Carolina. Um, I moved out to L.A. for work at the end of college, and then um, that's where I met my husband. And then when he started school, um, he started in St. Martin, at a school there in the Caribbean. And then after that, we ended up moving to different places for him to do his uh, clinicals for at different hospitals because he was in med school. So we went to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, then to England, then to New York, then to Miami. Mm. Now we're in the Charlotte area. So it's been a whirlwind. And all of that was in the past two to three years. <laughs> and, and you're carrying a notebook around because you're a writer, right? Of yeah. course. And you're recording course. what you're seeing. And yes. So you get to be a writer in places like St. Martin and mm-hmm. yeah, New York City. That's great. Yeah, St. Martin was actually where I wrote this book. Um, but it's funny because I feel like with all the travel that I've done, I've had people ask me as a writer, how are you going to put this into your writing? Is it inspiring you? And I think I'm inspired by the different places that I've been, and I might someday bring those into when I'm writing more. But it's also just the idea of homecoming that's really speaking to me right now. And that notion of being from someplace and then leaving it and then coming back and seeing how it seems different as you have a different perspective and you're a different person. Mm. Look, and an look person. homeward angel, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you can, if you can be accepted in your own in your own world. So you you, you are back. You're you're home now. Mm-hmm. You, you live in Concord, and you're uh, you're happy to be there. With you know, you said your pug. Right? Yes. <laughs> how much does a pug weigh? Um, well, the one I have right now is very young, so he's about three or four pounds. He's okay, tiny. All right. so yeah. You're not, you're not <laughs> he's break- going to get bigger, though. You're not breaking the bank on food. Yeah. Okay, but let's talk about the title here a second. Sure. Because you've got uh, the title is The Plus One. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about this idea of a plus one in this uh, this culture that we live in and, and what's expected of, of, I don't know if this is much, maybe even young young men too, but mm-hmm. young women when, when it comes comes to going to events and that kind of thing? Well, I think we have this kind of stigma around loneliness or being alone in our culture um, to show up at a wedding alone to, you know, go through life alone or just choose to be without a partner is still in some ways kind of looked down on. Um, And there are people who can choose that and be perfectly happy and perfectly fulfilled. And that's great for them. But there are also people like Kelly, who's the protagonist in this book, who, um, at her heart, she really does want a partner. She is lonely, and she would like to find love. And so there's sort of two things that get her into the story and to the place where she decides to build this robotic boyfriend. There's the immediate pressure by her mother to find a plus one for a wedding. Um, and so she's just kind of like, oh, okay, I need to do this. Yeah. I need to get my mom off my that, back. That's the opening scene. That you're, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the mom that's just, uh, she's going to bring the forces of the rest of the family in, and, and she's got this tennis player. Put the pressure on. <laughs> and this great tennis player, yeah. He's, he's, he's be gonna, perfect. He'd be perfect for you. Uh, yeah. Y'all will be the same size in the picture, too. Yeah. <laughs> That's all that matters, right? <laughs> exactly. Everyone's going to see the picture. But there's another reason, too, right? Yeah. yeah, well, at its heart, too, Kelly does want to find a boyfriend. She wants a partner in life, and it may not be exactly what her mother would envision for her, but she wants someone to connect with. And so I think she builds Ethan, her her robotic boyfriend, 
to initially satisfy her need for this plus one for the wedding and to kind of get her mom off her back. But the more time that she spends with him, the more she realizes that he's actually tapping into this deeper emotional need that she has for connection. And she starts to realize that he means more to her than just a wedding date. Yeah, we're going to get into that in terms of how she falls in love with a robot. Mm -hmm. But uh, before we leave this topic, you know, I think there's two aspects of this. One is the external looking in. Oh, oh, Mm -hmm. they don't have a date. You know, they don't have a, they're not married. But then the person themselves wanting to be coupled up, so to speak, because a lot of times there are a couple events, right? Well, we can't just invite one. Why not? Why can't right. we do that? I mean, why can't our <laughs> our society just, okay, let's the three of us go out to dinner somewhere. You know, it doesn't have to be four. Yeah. yeah. And that's something that Kelly hits up against a lot in this book, particularly with her mother who runs a bridal boutique for a living. And she has kind of traditional ideas about love and marriage and everyone should have this perfect nuclear family. Um, and as the book goes on, you start to see where some of that comes from in her own life. But for Kelly, it's a struggle to have this very traditional ideal kind of pressed on her that she's not living up to. Um, and it makes her feel like a failure that she doesn't yeah. have somebody in her life. Well, I thought about this, um, Sarah, too, not at just the millennial end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. but also uh, for the elderly who have lost a spouse. Yeah. It's the same thing. Suddenly their circle of friends might drop because, well, there's just one. Yeah. We normally have things with couples. Well, maybe we need to figure out how to build robot, robots for the retirement community, right? I think you in could real che- life, You could check one out, you know, to go to an event. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great idea. They'd probably be very popular. That, you could work that into your next novel, maybe? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. It'll be the sequel. Uh, at, at the retirement community. Okay, so let's talk about the book cover. They can't see it, but mm-hmm. um, but we can. And it's a beautiful sort of aqua blue color, kind of, or how would you describe it? Maybe, yeah, hmm. aqua pale teal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And... and and you've got two people on the front cover, right? Mm-hmm. You've got what I assume is Kelly. Yeah. She's the protagonist, right? She's facing us, but, mm-hmm. but her eyes are cast down because she's hugging someone, mm-hmm. right? Hugging can't someone. can't see his face. Can't see his face. He, he's dressed in a suit. Um, but there are some things at the bottom of the front cover, right? Mm-hmm. Some screws, nuts, bolts. I'm not very mechanical, so <laughs> I and, hope I'm getting and that, that right. And, and what is she holding in her hand as she's hugging him? Yeah. Is that a wrench? A wrench, yeah. yeah. You should know. <laughs> I'm not good with these things. It's your cover. It's your cover. I'm a writer. I'm not yeah. a but you, scientist. But you can tell that she's she's standing actually on a step stool, mm-hmm. um, her toes arched in the air as she's hugging this man. Um, which we know to be a robot, right? Yeah, and I like how, especially like with the detail of her toes being kind of in the air, it picks up on that sort of traditional romantic comedy image of like the, you're kissing him and you're like standing on tiptoe, but it's also a very different version of that where he's kind of just standing there with his arms down and his back is to us and there's there's the, the screws and the nuts and the bolts around. So I think it picks up on a lot of the story in that it's a romantic comedy, but it has a twist to it. Right. And on the cover, it says, when she couldn't find Mr. Wright, she built him. Exactly. And then uh, there's a blurb here from an author that says, prepare to fall in love. Mm-hmm. All right, fall in love with the book, f- watch Kelly, fall in love, watch the robot, maybe even fall in love. Yeah. Hopefully a little of yeah. all of those okay. things. All right, so the gem of the story, you're in L.A., you're mm-hmm. on the freeway, you're probably stuck in traffic. Of course. And this idea comes to you, right? Yeah, I was just driving to work one day, and the the basic kernel of the idea about um, a robotics engineer who builds her perfect boyfriend 
pink pretty much came to me fully formed. Um, I initially thought of it actually as a little bit of a reversal of the movie Weird Science, the 1980s John Hughes movie, mm. which is about these two teenage boys who build like their perfect woman in one mm. night. And that movie is very much a comedy. Um, and it, it doesn't have like a long-term relationship between the people and the robot. And in this one where it's a woman building her perfect man, I knew right off the bat that I wanted it to be um, funny, but also more of a relationship story. And I wanted it to take place over a longer period of time so that she would really get to know this person, if you could mm-hmm. call him a person, mm-hmm. and, and develop yeah, a relationship. That's the way she treated him, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about the movie, I think I mentioned it's Bicentennial Man mm-hmm. with Robin Williams, which over time the robot artificial intelligence continues to improve over the years. And for them, for him, and you didn't really address this issue too much in your book, but the immortality mm-hmm. of the robot, uh, you know, surviving at a point in time when maybe the robot can start to feel yeah. love, you know, love for the person. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I watched that movie and I, I think it was interesting how they did expand it over a longer time period, which right. for one thing allows you to kind of buy into the technology a bit sequel, more of it's set sequel, to the future. Sequel, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it also points <laughs> to the idea of how would it affect a relationship between a robot and a human if they are, you know, one is immortal and ageless and one is not. And so for Kelly, since this doesn't take place over 200 years, you know, that question doesn't come up as much. Um, but it's definitely something that she would have to think about down the road and that I can imagine in society, if we do start to see more relationships like this between humans and robots or different versions of AI entities, that that will be an issue that becomes relevant. Yeah, okay, so dating is hard. The pressure is on young people, maybe old people too, if they're separated or divorced or they lose a spouse, to find a mate. So it's the, you got this external and internal pressure, and mm-hmm. we're going to start first focusing, sort of picking up the theme that started the show here with the overbearing mother, the external conflict here. Um, so at this point, Kelly has started looking for her plus one for the wedding, and she's been trying by kind of traditional means like um, online dating, finding people through friends and family, going out to bars, that sort of thing, and it's not going very well. <laughs> so she's checking in with her mom about that, and her mom is not pleased that she hasn't found a plus one yet. Yeah, and so the first voice you're going to hear here is from Diane, the mother. But Diane wasn't finished. But what will I do with you, dear? You're already 29. You can't go on like this forever. I think you mean only 29, but Diane was on a roll. By your age, I was married with two kids and a third on the way. Gary was married at 27. Your sister will be married in less than two months, and she's only 25. I'm getting worried for you. Who will take care of you when you're old and alone? Socialized medicine or the apocalypse, whichever gets there first. I can take care of myself, Mom. For someone who talks about being 29 like I'm some bronze-aged corpse fished out of a bog, you don't seem to realize I'm an adult. All right, then, who are you bringing to the wedding? I don't know, the jolly fucking green giant. Kelly threw her left hand up in exasperation. Kelly Subtle, do you think this is all a joke? I think it's a party, not a Navy SEAL operation, and you're taking it way too seriously. Oh, so it's just a party. The biggest day of your sister's life and my life's work is just a party. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't this just sound like uh, a mother who's <laughs> trying Happy to... Happy family times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, trying to con- control the outcome of it. It's always like, a, hmm, I'm not sure uh, why you chose to wear that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure uh, what your plans are for uh, looking that way tonight. But in her case, it's... Uh, 
partly because, and I don't know if you've revealed this, that her mm-hmm. mother is a wedding planner too, right? She is. So yeah, her, she runs a bridal boutique, and she's also taken it upon herself to plan um, Kelly's sister's wedding, Clara's wedding. So it's not just any event for her. This is something that she takes very personally, and she's very determined that everything's going to go perfectly, which is part of why she thinks Kelly has to have not just a date, but an acceptable date. But I'm kind of on Kelly's side. It's not a Navy SEAL operation. Yeah. <laughs> this is just a wedding. And she says, oh, what do you mean? This is just, this is your sister's life. Yeah, Kelly and, and, thinks yeah. she's taking it all a little bit too seriously. Yeah, I think probably the readers uh, are on Kelly's side here when it comes to comes to that. But, but mm-hmm. you got this external conflict. But at the same time, as you said, um, while she is pushing back against her mother, mm-hmm. she also internally is, uh, she's working really hard as a robotics engineer. Mm-hmm. It's hard to find people to date, you know, at work. Uh, you have to go out and do things maybe you don't want to do, bar, whatever, you know. And so she's been constantly thinking about that. And then she has uh, she has this idea, right? She says, uh, hey, I'm, I'm a robotics engineer. I can do this. Right? Yeah. Why not and, just build one? <laughs> and so why, the same way that it happened for you on the freeway in L.A., it kind of happened for her mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in the lab, right? Yeah, she just kind of has this revelation where she's she's already been working on building um, realistic humanoid robots at work. So the technology is there. She has the expertise, but she spends a few days kind of holed away in the lab when nobody else is there, um, putting him together all at once. Okay, so we've got a couple of reads here that aren't very long each that describe uh, what uh, Kelly's looking for. The first one that you're going to do, uh, which is about a minute, long is at a point in time when she is doing what she is still trying to find her plus one by traditional non-robot means yeah, which is <laughs> so all, she's building that. a dating profile right, right. and kelly is very um ambitious in terms of what she's looking for in a date she has the sort of idea that if she finds the perfect guy who checks all her boxes then she knows that things are going to go well and it's less likely to fall apart on her and it's almost like i mean she's participating in this online dating but it's almost like she's trying to create something so perfect she doesn't mm-hmm. have to participate, right? That, that yeah, I think maybe they part of be. her wants to find someone and part of her is scared. Yeah, part of her doesn't really want this thing to work. Exactly. So she says, okay, well, I'll just, I'll just come up with my perfect uh, date and uh, we'll see if anybody matches up and go from there. So, yeah. All right, so if you'll read that section, her what she put out on the form, the online form for her, for her date. Height, 5'10 to 5'11. Athletic build, symmetrical smile, master's degree in a scientific field, ambitious professionally, but laid back personally, sense of humor, love of animals, love of movies, love of Twinkies, close to his family emotionally, but not physically. She didn't need another mother breathing down her neck, good at board games, but not better than her, likes mountain vacations, likes Harry Potter, likes the talking heads, knows how to cook, but can afford to eat out, prefers hand-drawn animation to CG, Wears V-necks, wears boxer briefs, doesn't wear yellow. Drinks martinis and knows how to make them. Has been to at least three different countries. Has been to at least ten different states. Cares about his friends, but not more than about her. Doesn't eat prunes. Has a good heart. (laughs) So so, did you have fun writing that? Yeah, it was fun to just come up with a combination of very serious things and very trivial things. Was there a little bit of Sarah saying, okay, if I'm going to 
pick my perfect guy here. You know, what am I going to do? Yeah. Bits and pieces. I would yeah. I would pick some of these and not others. So uh, which, I'll which, let you which, guess which ones. Uh, well, you must say love of animals because you've got a pug. For sure. Uh, that's yeah. important. Uh, sense of humor. You seem to have that. And uh, we've yeah, talked about the movies. Important. You like the movies. Mm-hmm. Not sure about Twinkies, you know. I haven't had a Twinkie since I was a child, so maybe okay. I should delve right. back into that world. <laughs> uh, do you like to beat your husband at board games? Yeah. We actually, we're pretty well matched. We actually, um, I think the last time we played Scrabble together, we tied, which is pretty hard to do in Scrabble. Okay. But that keeps it fun when you never know who's going to win. All right. And were you a Harry Potter fan growing up? Oh, yeah. yeah. Huge Harry Potter fan. Talking Heads? Yeah. I like the Talking Heads, but um, they're not they're not a, you know... Yeah. A necess- necessity for me. <laughs> I haven't seen you in a V... In, well, V-necks, uh, I guess, for the guys, right? Yeah. Boxer briefs instead of tidy whities Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Doesn't, doesn't wear yellow. Where does that come from? Honestly, I think that was just <laughs> Kelly being... Kelly, yeah. Being Kelly. <laughs> what a, what I have a, nothing uh, against the color yellow. <laughs> what, about the, what about the martinis? Yeah. I think that's good. I personally actually don't drink, so um, I really don't have preferences about what people drink or don't, but... You know, being able to mix a good martini is good when company comes over. It sounds like something that would be in the movies, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, of course, has been to at least three different countries because you've already done that and you're mm-hmm. not, you know, that old yet. So The uh, irony, of course, is Kelly herself has actually not been to that many places. <laughs> she yeah. grew up near Silicon Valley. She works there now. Um, so she's kind of asking for things that she herself hasn't even done. All right. So you said height 5'10 to 5'11. How tall is your mm-hmm. husband? Yeah. Um, I think he's right about 5'10". There you go. So yeah. you're cha- channeling, channeling <laughs> Subconsciously. Yeah, there you go. All right. Okay, so uh, we, she's been on the dating site. She's filled out the form. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not working for her, though. She's not finding what she wants there. And so this idea comes to her, and she's actually now completed her work, right? And she steps back to take a look at... Uh, what she's got. Right? Yeah, so she's built the body of the robot, but now she has to figure out the personality and the mind, um, right. which is a whole different enterprise. All right, so take it away. Then inspiration struck, and she almost laughed aloud. Of course, she had already designed her ideal mate. She accessed her list of requirements from the dating site and went to work, elaborating and fleshing out the profile as she programmed. A man should know how to tie a tie, change a tire, and train a dog. He needed to speak English, of course, and let's throw in Italian. And Mandarin is important. Oh, what the heck, she didn't have all day. She gave him access to all of Google. She knew she was taking a risk in making this man so extraordinary, but she didn't have time to cherry-pick, and frankly, she didn't want to. The more Kelly programmed, the less she was making a man, a breathing biped who could stand next to her in photos, and the more she was making her man. And finally, it was done. Or rather, he... Tingling, exhilarated, Kelly flipped the on switch, and stirring into life in front of her was the most amazing man she'd ever seen. He looked around the room a little, gaining his surroundings, but when his eyes found Kelly, they stopped. He smiled. Hi, Kelly, he said. So it's that easy, huh? (laughs) Probably not in real life, but (laughs) it's that easy to write. (laughs) I I like the way that you... uh we're struggling. Well, you're giving him different languages. You're giving mm-hmm. him all these things. He's got to know how to tie a tie, change a tire, train a dog, speak English, Italian, Mandarin. Um, but then she didn't have all day. She gave him access to all of Google. Yeah, that's simpler, right? <laughs> I think that's what I do. But didn't that present some potential problems and some of the humor in the book as, as mm-hmm. you go on? Because she's introducing her robot to people. He knows all these answers, right? Yeah. And it becomes a little awkward than a robot. But there's also the gulf between him knowing a massive amount of information, but also not knowing some things that a human would know about 
you know, why are certain things funny or why are things not funny or how do you act in certain social situations? So she still has to do a little bit of extra work after she's built him to kind of train him and fix some of the glitches that appear. Yeah, so as you were writing this, did you... uh Did you wonder how far away we are from this actually becoming a reality? Oh, yeah, for sure. Did you do some research on that? I did. So, I mean, I also used Google a lot for my research, reading articles and that sort of thing. Um, I also did some interviews with a few different robotics engineers just to talk about um, their work and their ideas on AI and, you know, how they they work in teams, how they do their research, that sort of thing. Obviously, in real life, we're not at the point yet where we have a robot that can just pass in human society and look and sound exactly like a human, um, unless they are out there and we just don't know that they're robots. (laughs) I guess that's possible. Um, But yeah, we we don't have the technology for Ethan fully yet, but people are definitely on the road to making that and trying to make that. And it's one thing to make the robot that can be uh, interactive uh, as a physical object, but you took it a step further and made this robot attractive, right? Yeah, and that's kind of how Kelly thinks about with, it. With these facial features and exactly. the little different things that humans have. and Yeah, she she kind of, in that scene there where she's building him, she bridges the gap between just saying, okay, I have to make somebody who I can pass off as a wedding date and deciding, well, I'm building this man, why not? just make him like my perfect guy why not make exactly what I want and that's where the switch kind of gets flipped from just trying to satisfy her mother to it starting to be something that's satisfying her as well all right so when we come back we're going to uh, find out how smart this robot is we're also going to dive into Sarah's writing life and the writing life segment we're going to actually find out whether this robot can have sex and uh, whether that's something that happens in this book and then uh Got a final read as well, so hey, stay with us. Hey listeners, I'd like to give a shout out here to Advent Coworking, one of my uh, partners. Advent Coworking is a co-working space in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte, whose mission is to create an environment where its members are productive, grow, and collaborate. And that's what uh, I've been trying to do here as a member of Advent, to uh, meet with uh, authors who are going to appear on the podcast, plan the podcast, and record the podcast in their well-equipped podcast studio. I have met a m- number of interesting people who work here because uh, Advent Coworking brings together a lot of interesting and creative individuals. Advent Coworking and I have also partnered on the Advent Coworking Charlotte Rouge Podcast used book library, which uh, is a wonderful space uh, here at, at Advent Coworking. Uh, quiet. Uh, it's got uh, chairs and sofas and tables to relax. And uh, we've even got a shelf for all the author books who've appeared on Charlotte Reader's Podcast, you can check it out uh, when you check out uh, Advent Coworking. If you become a Patreon member and support Charlotte Reader's Podcast, you can also have access to some free day passes. That's another way to check out Advent Coworking. Information about uh, Patreon is on our website. You can also find it at uh, patreon.com slash Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Information about Advent Coworking you can find at adventcoworking.com. Let's get back to the episode. Hey, listeners, we're back with uh, Sarah Archer. She is the author of The Plus One, her debut novel. We are now at a point in the book where it's that, I guess, Sarah, it's that time that uh, all 
young people sort of approach with trepidation mm-hmm. when they're bringing home their date to the family for, for the, the first, first time. time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what, what are they going to think? You know, what's going to happen here and so forth. And so you have kind of a funny scene um, here at, at the dinner table and with, with the family there and the mother's kind of in charge and everything. But there's uh, always this, and it's going to start with this question that's the most awkward question. It's, it's a question that people in the United States probably ask more than they ask in other countries. You know, what do you do? What do you do? So that's the question that Eth- uh, that Ethan's going to get. And, of course, she's worried about how Ethan might answer because mm-hmm. he's got Google, right? Yeah. Right, okay, so let's start there and uh, read for a little bit, and then we'll take a segue to another part of this uh, dinner table conversation. And what exactly is it you do, Diane continued. I teach, Ethan answered. I'm an associate professor of astronomy at Stanford. Kelly restrained herself from rushing in and rattling off the entire professional history she had concocted. Hmm, was all Diane replied, taking a careful bite of salad. She kept her eyes trained down, throwing out the next question casually. And do you typically date women? Mom, it's an honest question. I'm just trying to get to know your new friend. Now Kelly saw it. They didn't believe him. Not that her family didn't believe that Ethan was human, but they didn't believe that someone like him would date someone like her. They are waiting for the catch. So Mom maybe thinks that uh, Kelly has hired her gay friend to come be, yeah, be she, her date. For she the, thinks something is up, which she, she, Kelly is kind of insulted about. She's not buying it. And then they have a little, you know, they, she pulls her out to the kitchen. They have another one of these back and forths about uh you know, about her being able to find her own man, but that in, in that you see that Kelly is struggling too because, um, you know, we're, we're getting into the middle of the book here and we're starting to see that Kelly is starting to shift feelings mm-hmm. as well. And she's trying to sort out this idea of, okay, he, he's not a real person, it's a robot, and yet, guy, he's good looking and he's smart and. Mm-hmm. He, he's nice to me, and he does he all these things. Me understands me perfectly, yeah. and lets me win at board games. <laughs> <laughs> all this good stuff, and so, um, and then there's the conversation turns uh, because the family is never really the way you set it up in the book. Mm-hmm. Even though she is a robotics engineer, they don't know what that means. For all they know, she's a mechanic working, you know, on diesel engines or something. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't know how much skill she's got and the kind of thing she's doing to change the world and so Ethan kind of pipes up and comes to her mm-hmm. aid in that respect right yeah the yeah. mother always likens it to the hall of presidents at Disney which is like a they have those animatronic figures where it's yeah. basically like a, a robot who can move and talk but it's very different from what Kelly actually does yeah, so she thinks that Kelly just makes these, uh, these kind of fi- a talking mannequin yeah a talking mannequin yeah. not, not some something that could change the world mm-hmm. yeah so okay go ahead don't you want to hear more about Kelly's news Ethan asked The table went silent. Kelly paused and looked at him more incredulously even than the rest of the group did. I think it's fascinating. He smiled warmly at her. It is, Kelly asked. Do you even know what Kelly does in her lab? Of course, it's like the Hall of Presidents, Diane said. Kelly had to stop Ethan. If he started sharing his knowledge of what went on in Kelly's lab, this could quickly go south. That's basically it. There's nothing else really to talk about, she interjected. But it's much more than that, Ethan pressed. The Hall of Presidents is an attraction located in Liberty Square at the Magic Kingdom in the Walt Disney World Resort. Was he just reading off the Wikipedia articles in his brain? Kelly winced, but before she could do anything, he went on. Its audio-animatronic figures of our nation's presidents carry out pre-programmed sequences involving voice recordings and choreographed mechanical movements. 
What Kelly is working on is the development of an Android model programmed to follow intricate codes of command and to respond to an infinite variety of variables and stimuli, making it infinitely more complex. Furthermore, Confabot will have the emotional intelligence to navigate charged human interactions, while also being precisely controllable. The implications are authentically society-changing. The Hall of Presidents memorializes people who have shaped our world. What Kelly is doing has the potential to shape it. Ethan's eyes sparkled. The whole table was silent until Emma finally captured her drip of ice cream with a ferocious slurp. Diane looked astounded. My goodness, I guess you understand what Kelly does on a whole different level than we do, Ethan. She smiled at him for the first time, and Kelly couldn't help but grin. Why don't you tell us more? So not only is he uh, smart, good-looking, letting her win at board games, but mm -hmm. he, he's also winning over the family the first time out. Yeah. yeah, and he really changes over the course of the book the way that she relates to her family and the way that they relate to her. And making her making her look good to them as well. And, uh, of course, that's building up her her ego as well and mm -hmm. uh, making her feel good about her work and what she's done. Yeah, because she, she struggles a lot with self-confidence, especially in the beginning of the book. And so having Ethan, who is someone who just supports her unconditionally and sees the best in her, really helps her to have more confidence in herself. Okay, so now we're going to jump into the writing life segment before we have a couple of final discussions and reads from your book here. So you got this debut novel. Have you always wanted to be a writer? Oh, yeah, since I yeah. was maybe six or seven years old. Yeah, did you, uh, what did you write at six or seven years old? Um, I remember writing a little short story about a pug, <laughs> a running theme in my life. <laughs> what is it about pugs? I guess you had a pug when you were younger, right? Yeah, yeah. I had my first one when I was starting when I was four, so okay. pretty much as long as I can remember. And did you write through high school and in college? And mm -hmm. Was it prose or poetry or both? Some or? of both. Um, so I, I went to the school at UNC Chapel Hill, and I did my um, my. My major was in um, English, but I also did a program in creative writing there where I focused on poetry, and then I also did a screenwriting minor. So I dabbled in a little bit of everything. And um, then when I went out to L.A. afterwards, I was really focusing on screenwriting. But I've always wanted to write a novel. It was just I didn't really have the, the time or the bandwidth to do so while I was working as an assistant in Hollywood. Um, so once I left that, I finally had the time to put a novel on paper, and that's where this came from. Now, you were working in something called Project Development in television out in, mm -hmm. out in Hollywood. What exactly is that? That's basically what happens before something gets on screen. It's what happens <laughs> so, before something happens? Yeah, yeah it's, um, <laughs> it's a lot of not much happening to make a little bit happen every now and then. It's a lot of people just taking meetings, getting to know each other, talking about ideas that they might want to write um, or looking for pieces of IP like novels or, I mean, these days you'll have movies and, and TV shows based on board games or Twitter feeds or anything. So looking for ideas that could be developed for the screen um, and then helping those ideas get on the page. And while you were in that space sort of circulating with all these creatives, you wrote a freelance script that got picked up by Comedy Central, right? Well, I so there was a show called Trip Tank that was a um, animated sketch comedy show, and mm -hmm. I, I sold a script to them. And I also just wrote a bunch of spec scripts on my own, which is kind of what you do when you're doing the assistant hustle out there. You just kind of write mm -hmm. whatever you can and try to get anyone to read it who's willing to. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of just kind of throwing things out there and hoping they land. Um, and then when I wrote the plus one for the first time, it, it was nice to be writing something that felt like I had a little bit more of a light at the end of the tunnel, because with a book, if you want to self-publish it, you can. So you do have that option of getting it out there as a book in one form or another, which mm -hmm. 
in screenwriting, you really don't have that control on your own. Yeah, unless you've got, <laughs> you got the ability to make your own Unless you've got a lot of money, like basically. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a lot of money, yeah. yeah. So uh, before we get to, and I want to talk about the publishing side mm-hmm. of things in a minute, but uh, before we get there, I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, when you're writing scripts for television, that's a different skill set a little bit than writing a novel, right? Yeah. Talk about the differences between the two and maybe how doing that also helped you with your novel. Well, I think screenwriting is really helpful to learn about structure. Um, a screenplay, whether it's a film or even more so, I think, a TV show, you have to be very concise. You have to stick to a specific structure. I mean, in TV, a lot of times it's even you have to fit your acts around the commercial breaks. Um, so you really have to stick to a certain story structure and you have to fit within a certain length. So you become very disciplined about the story and about hitting those marks with the story and keeping it moving forward. And I think that's really valuable to learn for a novel where you have a little bit more leeway to be kind of looser with it, but to still stick to those fundamentals and keep the story moving and be concise is really helpful. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you when you, you took that discipline, that structure idea, there, there, there are structures, I mean, some people call them formulas, some people call them structures, however you want to call them, in writing novels. Did you approach the novel in that way? Did you come up with kind of a structure you were going to follow when you wrote the novel? Yeah, so I, when I was writing this, I used, I think, basically a, a three-act structure. I was kind of loose about it. I didn't exactly follow that, um, but I tend to think in terms of three acts and a midpoint in the middle of the second act, which is where the story sort of turns, which in this story would be the wedding, Clara's mm-hmm. wedding. Yeah, because let's, t- let's talk about what happens there because, mm-hmm. you know, she builds a robot to take him to the wedding. Yeah. When the wedding's over, her plan had been what? Well, she was supposed to take him apart the next right, day because right. he had served his purpose. So now we got to make a decision. Yeah. So yeah. that's really the fulcrum where the story turns, and it goes from being about needing a date for the wedding to being, well, the wedding's over. I no longer need him, but I want him. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, your debut novel, uh, how many years did it take you to write it? Did you just write on the beach at St. Martin's for two years? Um, <laughs> writing on the beach is kind of tough. I tried it, but there's a lot of sand in the laptop. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Not very good. You don't, don't want to do that. So. Yeah. Um, but I was, I was working on it when I was in St. Martin, and it took me, I think, about two years total. I was working on off and on with other projects in between. And then from there, that, that point, it was um, maybe another year or so of doing some revisions, again, off and on with other projects and looking for an agent. Um, and then once I, I found my agent, it was, I think, about a year total of revisions with her and then with my editor, um, and then about a year from that point to when it actually came out. So just lesson being, takes a lot of work, right? Yeah. yeah. In the query process, you queried um, agents, obviously, and then your agents queried publishers. Mm-hmm. How many queries did you send out for an agent? Um, I think I might have sent maybe 20 to 30 total and I was kind of doing them on a rolling basis so you know some people will get back to you within a day some people will take months or a year some people if they're not interested just don't respond at all so you're kind of just sending them out and you haven't heard back from the first people you reached out to yet but you just keep sending letters so I would just kind of as I had time like research online look for agents if I found someone who seemed appropriate I would query them and just keep sending them out while I was waiting to hear back from the first people Um, So I was doing that for a few months before I found the agent who I ended up with. Mm -hmm. And in that process, uh, obviously you got an interesting little hook here about a woman who builds her plus one. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure that's front and center to your query 
But any any lessons learned about the query process? I think, um, well, like you were saying, having a hook is, is helpful. With any novel, you have to be able to distill it into a very short space on the page when you're writing a query. So being able to identify what the story really is and boil it down to what makes it exciting or interesting so that it grabs someone's attention is helpful. Um, and I would also say with querying, just go for quality over quantity. You know, don't just send queries out randomly to every agent whose email mm. address you can find. Right, right. <laughs> Pick the people who you think um, might actually be interested in, in what you're writing and you're using your time better that way and you're also using their time better. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, so um, routine, was that a part of your process? Is that a part of your writing process? Not as much as it should be. (laughs) I always aspire to be more disciplined in terms of sticking to a routine, but life gets in the way. Do you use a keyboard? Do you write by hand, or what do you do? Oh, I always use a keyboard, yeah. I tend to to make a lot of revisions, so it helps to have it. We played this. We played this game one time, like uh, either or, neither, all of them, Mm -hmm. dictionary or spell check. Dictionary. Dictionary, yeah. Okay, so even though it's there on your computer, you mm-hmm. go to the dictionary. Yeah. Well, I don't struggle with spelling so much, yeah. but I, when I'm reading, if I see a word that I don't know, I always like to look it up. Okay. And you'll go get the hardback dictionary to do Dictionary.com. That. Oh, see? Okay. <laughs> I don't own a hardback dictionary, even though okay. I should. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I guess that's a form of spell check. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's looking true. up the meaning. Outline or free flow? Outline, definitely. Okay. In the light of day or the dark of night, when do you write? Um, mostly dark of night. I try to start early in the day because I think it's helpful to get a little bit of writing done in the morning and then come back to it later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do most of my work at night. Do you have music on in the background while you're writing, or do you like complete silence? At home, it's usually silence, but I also like to write in coffee shops. So if there's background music, it doesn't bother me. Mm. Do you like writing the first draft more or revising your work more? Um, that's a tough one. I think maybe revising it. Revising hmm. is tough, but that's where you start to see it get better and get closer to what you actually want it to be. Mm-hmm. And so that's really exciting. Do you sometimes surprise yourself about uh, where you end up with your writing, though you start in one place? Oh, yeah, for did, sure. Did it happen in this book? Um, it did somewhat. I would say the first draft was more of a straight comedy. I mean, it definitely had the romantic elements to it, but the focus was more on the comedy. And um, by the end, we brought out more of the romance angle and more of the kind of heart of it. And I, I liked the way that that ended up. Mm-hmm. Um, I also changed the structure around a lot, which uh, was my editor's idea of, of moving the wedding out later in time. Mm-hmm. And I think that really helped it to come together. That's good. So you sound like a person who, you know, is uh, you persevere. You continue to send out the mm-hmm. query letters. Um, rejection does it bother you how do you deal with it yeah. uh, of course it bothers me I think it bothers everyone but yeah. it's one of those things where the more it happens the easier yeah. it gets <laughs> so yeah. just keep doing it um, yeah. and I also I know for me like if I if I read a book sometimes I'll look it up online and I always find reviews that are different from how I reacted to it so that remembering that is helpful when I'm looking at my own reviews or reactions from people just knowing that it's all very subjective. Mm-hmm. No one is going to agree about a piece of writing. Yeah, and by the time this comes out, there will be an episode that I'm curating on our Patreon site where authors have supplied me with some very interesting and fun rejection stories. Yeah. I'm excited for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so a um, couple final questions here. Uh, yeah. What do you do to stay sharp as a writer? Do you attend uh, writing groups? Do you go to clubs? Do you in a critique group? What do you do? 
I am in maybe six to seven different groups um, for writers out here. I've probably overcommitted myself a bit. Okay, so where, but, where, where are you a member of? Yeah. Uh, well, Charlotte Writers Club, right. and I have a couple of different critique groups that I belong to through them. Um, there's a group in Davidson. There's a bookstore called Main Street Books in yep. Davidson, which yep. is great, and I have actually t- a couple of different groups through them. Um, there's one in Concord. Um, Women's National Book Association has a chapter in Charlotte that I've gotten involved with. So there's a lot to do in the area, which is great. And I think as a writer, it's so easy to just isolate yourself and have it just be you and and the page. Um, So I really make an effort to kind of tap into the communal aspect of writing. And I know for me, getting notes from people and getting their feedback as I'm working on something is a huge part of my process. It's really important. Mm -hmm. That's great. So as young as you are... um where do you hope to be in 10 years as a writer? Um, hopefully just continuing to put out work and getting better. I would mm-hmm. like to be able to tap into the humor, but also the heart of my stories. And um, sometimes getting kind of personal and sincere is hard for me as a writer, especially coming from a comedy background where it's all about irony. So that's something that I want to continue developing and just hopefully reaching readers. That's what yeah, I really you're going to continue, continue to carry that lightning rod around with you okay, so you can get struck Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> fingers crossed. Yeah, there you go. All right, okay, let's shift back to the book. A couple of uh, final things we're going to do here. Um, first of all, this uh, I mentioned this at the break point, uh, Sex with a Robot. Mm-hmm. When did you start thinking about whether you were going to put Kelly in that position? Uh, I think I figured it out pretty early on. Um, It was something that I grappled with a bit because obviously, like, he's a robot. It's kind of weird, kind of off-putting. But I really wanted her character to get to a point where she is able to fully invest in this relationship and to think of it as a real relationship and to wonder, you know, can this go on longer than just past the wedding? Can this be um, a real person in my life? And I think if they were never physically involved there would be a major difference between him and a human partner, and she would know he's never going to be everything that I need in a relationship. So they did have to get physically intimate for her to be able psychologically to get that to that point where she can see him as a real partner. Some would say this is the work of the devil here. You know, yeah. Not, yeah. <laughs> and and how how's the species going to propagate uh, if we end up with uh, robots as our partners? Of course, they'll probably figure something out. Yeah, I'm too, sure right? they can. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. actually there's an organization that I've heard about. I think it's called the Campaign Against Sex Robots, which does exactly what the name suggests. And they, I think, it's partially about fears of misogyny and sex robots right. encouraging misogyny, and partially about um, concerns about relationships between humans and machines replacing relationships between humans and humans. Um, and so there are valid concerns about it for sure. Don't you think? Um We've already got that problem a little bit that we're in love with our technology. Yeah, we're in love with, with our, our phones. phones yeah. I mean, when our phone gives us a ping, we love. We want to kiss that our, kiss our phone. Yeah. <laughs> you can't be separated. <laughs> Thank you for that like. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're already we're on the road there, yeah, for better okay. or for worse. So this little scene, which is only about a minute that you're going to read here, is uh, after they've already had sex, right? It's mm-hmm. uh, and she is uh, not sure how she feels. Um, from an intimacy standpoint, being around the robot, a little bit of a funny scene because uh, she's not sure about uh, whether she should be 
seen naked or not in front of the robot. Yeah, yeah this where, is, whereas before this was never an issue, right? Exactly, because when she first built him, she just thought of him as the machine. I mean, she so walked around. Was, she walked around like yeah, you know, totally like a, shameless. It was, the pug, it was the pug in the room or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. But now, <laughs> but now she sees him as almost a person. Yeah. Okay. Pick it up. Finally, he spoke. I'll make you a deal. I wear this sheet forever. You wear that towel forever, and we'll save a ton of money on laundry detergent. Okay? Kelly laughed. The tensions inside of her suddenly seemed ridiculous. Fine, fine. She dropped her towel and started getting dressed while Ethan went to his own wardrobe. I guess there's no point in my being modest, he went on, seeing as you made my entire body. Didn't do a bad job on it, either, she said with a flirtatious smile. You're not so bad yourself. He kissed her on the cheek and walked away into the kitchen. A little butterfly took up residence somewhere around her heart. But here's the other problem that she's got. She's got a friend. Her close friend's name is, you pronounce it? Priya. Priya. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's so close to her that she would probably share with her, like some women do, um, if they're intimate, you know, with a man or someone else, Mm -hmm. and they're going to share it with their best friend. and, uh, And yet... She's not sure she can bring herself to do that, at least in this part of the book, right? Yeah, because yeah. she's been keeping Ethan kind of a secret from everyone because she built him with stolen work equipment. So yeah. um, she can't tell anyone who he really is. And she also feels a little bit awkward about the fact that she just slept with a robot. <laughs> and, so, so, and so the first line is going to be Priya asking a question. And the next two lines, three lines you're going to read here are not her response. They're her thinking mm-hmm. about what she would say to her if she could. Yeah. Right. And then she says what she really says. Yeah, okay. exactly. All right. What's up? Priya asked her, her eyes focused down on her work. I built myself a boyfriend. We slept together. I think I'm falling for him. I really want to talk to my best friend about it. Nothing much was all Kelly said. And then she struggles with that through the book, right? Yeah. And, it starts uh, to drive a wedge between her and her best friend because she can't yeah. be honest. No, she can't be honest. Okay, so um, when do you think, uh, you know, we're going to be really wrestling with these kinds of issues? Because artificial intelligence is moving fast in the legal industry. I found out a couple years ago that uh, a law firm actually hired a robot Hmm. to do research for them. Wow. Did they pay it? (laughs) Uh, Well, they paid whoever built it and whoever licensed it to them. But this robot apparently could do research and write a brief and probably, you know, I mean, 30 minutes maybe compared hmm. to what it would take an associate 20, 30, 40 hours wow. to do. So it's one of these things that lawyers should begin to be worried about a little bit. Yeah, you know? yeah. it's going to take their jobs. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to take their jobs, you know, what's next, that kind of thing. But it's going to be happening in a lot of different industries too. Mm-hmm. When, when, And there have been all these movies about artificial intelligence and whether they then take over the world, right, yeah. if, we, if we make too many of them. So how soon do you think it's going to be uh, before you can go out and build your uh, your plus one? I mean, some people are predicting within as little as maybe 10 years we'll start to have robots. I don't know if they'll be as completely um, humanoid as Ethan, but at least that are able to function basically like humans in society and that people will have this type of relationship with. Mm-hmm. So it's it's probably coming pretty soon. Well, there's this show. It's on Netflix now. I grew up watching the uh, black and white version on TV lost in space, you know, hmm. and there's a robot in the story. After the Robinsons get lost in space, the robot is the one that tells yeah, young Will, you know, danger Will Robinson, mm-hmm. danger Will Robinson. <laughs> and so, but now in this Netflix version years later, that the, the robot, I mean, they're really smarter, much smarter now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's coming, right? It's coming. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh-huh. And it's interesting to see, too, like you were talking about TV shows, how in pop culture the representations of robots and AI shift over time. Right. And it goes from being about, you know, what are humans getting out of robots to now starting to think like, oh, maybe robots and AI entities are their own thing and they really wouldn't even want to be human or want anything to do with us. You know, maybe they've got their own lives that are totally outside of ours. Well, you've got Hal in the Space Odyssey, right? You're, yeah. You're t- taking <laughs> they over. They turn on you at some point. They turn on you. And that's, that's the other, those are the other kind of AI books that are being written. They're turning mm-hmm. on you. All right, so you got a final read. It's about a minute long. Um, let's set this up just a second. Uh, we're at a point in the book where I think you foreshadowed it earlier. She has doubts. Uh, Kelly has to make a decision. Does she turn him off after the wedding or does she move forward? And she's really struggling with this decision, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, she's wondering, um, can she actually keep him around in her life for good? What would her life be like after Ethan? In her first 29 years, she had never found anything close to the intimacy she had with him. He was literally her perfect match. He picked up on her every desire and molded himself after it. But was making someone who became perfect for her the same as finding her perfect person? She thought back to all her hours of research on the health impacts of loneliness, the shorter lifespan, the dementia, the depression— She knew that finding love was challenging. She knew that she herself was not an easy person to love. She could imagine a version of herself going between her home and office, day in, day out for years, until she could no longer go anywhere but home, living out her days on her own. Loneliness was a real and heavy threat, but was it enough to be with someone who molded himself after her desires? How could she know if he had any true desires of his own? Was it enough to be with someone if she wasn't sure if he was someone? Kelly tried to shake off the thoughts clogging her brain and just enjoy the moment. She turned from the view to search Ethan's face. But it was impossible to tell if the happiness on his face was more than a reflection of her own. So you're starting to raise all the ethical and existential issues yeah, here as well. Yeah. And uh, and then she's going to have to make a choice. And you have a little twist at the end, which we're not going to give away, mm-hmm. you know, as to what happens here. So, uh, yeah, good stuff. Um, so you're working on something else now? Yeah, I've got two projects that I'm primarily working on right now. Um, one is another book, which is another romantic comedy, um, and it has to do with animals. There is a pug in it, of course, okay. <laughs> as okay. you might have guessed. Yeah, yeah. And I've also got a screenplay that I'm working on, which um, is a historical drama based on a true story, so totally different end of the spectrum. Okay. Well, yeah. look, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing this. Uh, f- I had fun reading it. It's uh you know, you're a good writer, and you've got an interesting story here, and uh, it's a lot, lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had fun writing it. Good, good. Uh, appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, 
that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.